0: I hope you were able to be here with us last weekend. I know uh, we had several families who were out on spring break, but what a cool uh, Sunday to celebrate our Lord's birth. And I just, I want to say our Lord's birth is <laughs> uh, <laughs> rising from the dead. I get my calendar mixed up sometimes. I do want to say this though, it was evident uh, that you were intentional about inviting people to be here at Easter and I say that because we typically run somewhere around a thousand people on a weekend between our Noblesville campus and our Carmel campus and we don't push numbers around here a lot but I do want you to know we were at over 1,400 people for Easter this year across both campuses (laughs) celebrate that for sure. But as you celebrate that, I want you to know that I believe that's a direct reflection of your intentionality to, to take invite cards and to have conversations and to be talking with the people in your life who are far from God. And, and it just points to the fact that, that possibly 400 people last weekend at Genesis Church heard the gospel message either for the first time or for the first time in a long time. And again, that's because of your intentionality, and I appreciate that. Just wanted to say that to you as as one of your pastors who doesn't even know the difference between Christmas and Easter. This morning, we're going to start a brand new series titled, Asking for a Friend. And over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to be answering some of the tough questions surrounding uh, God and Jesus and the Christian faith. Because here's what we know. We know that there are some of you who, even within your week this week, you're going to be having some conversations with people. And very likely, there are people in your life who believe that you are an absolute fool for believing that there's a God. There are people who believe that it is foolishness, that you would think that there is anything other than what we can see with these physical eyes. And and you may wholeheartedly believe the gospel, know that Jesus uh, died for you, he is your Lord and Savior, but when these topics come up, Maybe you're not sure how to respond, and we want to help equip you for those conversations and to help you, as Peter says, to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. But I also want you to know that if you're new here this morning, uh, maybe you're skeptical about God and about Christianity, I want you to know I'm so glad you're here today, and uh, I hope you'll keep coming. I hope you'll keep uh, asking questions. Your questions are certainly welcome here. Uh, And I hope that over the next several weeks, you'll allow us to give you some things to consider as you wrestle with the questions that you have or the things that you felt were inconsistent within the Christian faith. And that's even true with the question we're going to address this morning. And it's probably the most emotional question surrounding Christianity, and it's one of the, the primary arguments that people would use against the existence of God. And it has to do with the problem of evil. And there's not a single person on planet Earth who hasn't felt in some way, shape, or form the effects, the pain, the suffering that come as a result of the evil in our world. And I have no doubt that when you go home today and, and maybe you turn on the news or, or you read the newspaper, or you go to your favorite news source online, that you will be overwhelmed with the stories of the terrible things that happened even in the last 24-hour period. Some of those things will be because of people's actions, and some of those things will be because of accidents or or natural disasters. But every day there's something new, isn't there? We're in this 24-hour news cycle period where, where there's some new manifestation of pain and suffering in the world every time we look. But for others, it's actually much closer to home than a news story because there are some here this morning... And you have experienced things in your life, or maybe you're in the middle of something right now that is so painful and so difficult that there really are no words to describe it. And the evil in this world has led a number of people to ask a question like this one How can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world? I mean, in the midst of all of this pain and suffering and evil that we see and experience, how can Christians possibly believe, first of all, that there even is a God, but beyond that, that that he would be a good God? And I want you to know that while I believe there is an answer to that question, and I believe that it's a, a true answer and it's a beneficial answer, I want you to know that the answer we'll see this morning is not emotionally satisfying. And that is to say... You're not going to walk away after this message this morning and think, wow, like now that I know that, I feel so much better about the pain and suffering in our world. I mean, come on, we know that's not a reality, right? But what I do hope to give you today is a context for why evil exists and why a good God would allow it to continue. And I'm praying that it will be a context that will lead you toward God, not away from God. And that it will give you hope in the midst of the pain that we all experience in this life. How can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world? Well, to begin addressing that question, I want you to consider this statement from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said that, that when we're approaching a topic like this, that it is critically important to examine the assumptions within the question And in our question this morning, I want to examine and address four assumptions that I see there. Here's the first one. The first assumption is this. If there was a God and if he was good, he would end all evil. Okay, it's essentially just, just the flip of our question. If we were to, to pose the question as a statement, this is what we would say. And would you agree that, that this is the big assumption behind the question? Because here's the deal. Christianity teaches that God is all-knowing, okay? So so he certainly must know, if he's all-knowing, about the evil in our world. He certainly must know about our pain and our suffering. And Christianity also teaches that God is all-powerful. So he must have the power to end all evil. And just for the sake of illustration, let's say that, that this is the tool that God's going to use to end all evil on planet earth, okay? It's the easy button. And, uh, and let's say that, that God knows, you know, we, we say he knows about the problem of evil, he's aware of our pain and suffering, and he has the tool to make it all go away. Why doesn't he just push it? That's what a good God would do, right? He would push this button and make all the evil go away. That's what our question this morning assumes. But let me ask you a question. What if you had the button? Like, what if if you had the opportunity to get rid of all the evil in the world? With just a push of this button, would you do it? And before you answer that question, I think you would be wise to consider one other question, and it's this. When you think about the people in your life who you love the most, the people you care about, have any of them ever done anything that might be considered bad? Like when you think about those of you who have kids, have your kids ever told a lie? Has your wife or your husband ever potentially done something that might be considered unjust or bad? Have your closest friends, is there possibly something in their past, something that they did that they've never told you about that was was pretty bad? Like, is there that possibility? Because if the answer to that question is yes, then you need to know that when you push this button, the first thing to go away might be the people you love the most. Because here's what's true. The only way to end evil on earth is to end evil doers. It's to put an end to the evildoers. And Paul points this out in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And none is righteous, no, not one. So if that would cause you to hesitate to push this button, could you be open to the possibility that God has a reason to hesitate as well? See, because while Christianity teaches that God is all-knowing, and that God is all-powerful. It also teaches that there is a reason why he is hesitating to push this button. And the reason is you. And the reason is me. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 9, he says, God is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. So folks, you need to know that Christianity doesn't necessarily disagree with assumption number one, okay? It doesn't necessarily disagree with the idea that a good God would end all evil. In fact, we believe that there is a day when God will completely destroy evil and the pain and the suffering of this earth will come to an end. But on that day, every single person will be judged the righteous to eternal reward, and the unrighteous to eternal punishment. And I hope you'll join us next week because we're going to tackle the topics of heaven and hell. And we're going to look at at what the Bible teaches about that. But listen, Scripture isn't fuzzy on this at all. God doesn't want anyone to perish. His desire is that everyone would come to repentance, and he has held off on pushing this button. Not because he's slow in keeping his promise, and we're going to talk about what that promise is later, okay? We're not there yet, but keep it in mind. We're going to come back to it at the end of the message. But he's not slow, he's patient, and he's not wanting anyone to perish. He's giving mankind time repent, and Now, why would we need to repent? Well, that leads us to the second assumption within our question this morning. And that assumption is this, that certain things ought not be. Certain things ought not be. There is something inside of you and inside of me that tells us that certain things ought not be. And the question that we're trying to answer this morning, how can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world, It shows us that we believe this to be true because to talk about evil is to agree that there is also something that is inherently wrong, right? It's something that that ought not be. One of the great apologists and theologians of our time is a man named Ravi Zacharias. And Ravi travels around to different college campuses, not not Christian college campuses. He goes to to secular college campuses, and he lays out a defense for God and the Christian faith. And oftentimes, at the end of his talk, he'll have an open mic, and he'll invite students to come up and to ask him questions, and he'll interact with them one-on-one. And he tells a story about one of these, uh, these campuses that he was on. At the end of his talk, a man came up to the microphone, and he asked the question that we're asking this morning. How can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world? And Ravi responded to him by saying this. He said, he said you say that there's evil in the world. Would you also agree, then, that there is good? And the man thought about that for a minute, and he said, yeah, I would agree with that. And Ravi said, well, if there's such a thing as good and evil, then don't you have to, to also agree that there's such a thing as moral law, that there's a, a universal understanding of what good and evil are, moral law. And the man really didn't want to agree with that, but he, he said, yeah, I, I guess you do. You have to agree. If there's good and evil, then there's moral law. And Ravi said, well, if there's moral law, doesn't that have to come from outside of the individual? Like, we can't all just make up what that would be. So if there's moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. And the man agreed, yeah, that that would make sense. And Ravi said, "Well, well, now we've come to the point of recognizing not that God doesn't exist, but rather that he does. See, the moral law giver is God. And Ravi gently pointed that out to this man. And I think it's so important for us to understand. I put it in your notes page today, and I would encourage you to write it down. That if we are willing to say that there's evil in the world, then we must also be willing to say that there is good. And if there's such a thing as good and evil, then that means there's such a thing as a moral law. And if there's such a thing as moral law, that means there's a moral law giver. And that moral law giver is God. I quoted C.S. Lewis earlier, and Lewis was a scholar and a theologian. He's well-known for his work in apologetics. And by the way, I keep using that word. If you're not familiar, that doesn't mean we apologize. That uh, okay. Apologetics is just uh, the reason behind what we believe. It's giving a defense for your faith. That's what apologetics means. And uh, C.S. Lewis was, was just extraordinary at being able to take complex ideas about God and about faith and to make them understandable for the average person. In fact, if you're looking for a great place to start uh, to dig deeper into some of this, I would highly recommend this book, Mere Christianity, uh, by C.S. Lewis. It is fantastic. But in this book, uh, Lewis talks about how he actually started out as a skeptic and an atheist, okay? He, He didn't start on this journey as a Christ follower, but it was this sense that certain things ought not be that moved C.S. Lewis from being an atheist to being a theist. Now, not to being a Christian, okay? He wasn't ready to say that that this God, this moral lawgiver was the God of the Bible, but it was the thing that, that made him recognize that it was something outside of himself that was de- determining this universal moral law. In fact, I want you to listen uh, at what CS Lewis wrote in the first chapter of Mere Christianity. He says, uh, people say things like this all the time. They say things like how do you feel if anyone did the same to you? Or that's my seat. I was there first. Or leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Or how about this one? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. And people say things like this every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. Children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. Listen. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior, which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard, okay? Now, I realize I just cussed in church, but it wasn't me. It was C.S. Lewis. So please, (laughs) please do not send me an email. You can email lewis at imdeadidontcare.com, okay? (laughs) That's where that can go. But even that sense inside of you that, that, that you shouldn't say that, right? Even that is a proof that there are certain things that ought not be, right? And Lewis goes on in this book to, to point out that when we talk about evil in the world, it's not a proof against God. And, and we don't think that we made you know, this standard up because we believe this standard of right and wrong is widely recognized. Think about this in your own life. Have you ever watched the news and seen something just absolutely terrible and then the next day gone to work and and asked the, the people you work with, man, did you see that last night? That was awful, wasn't it? Or, or maybe it was something really good and, and you stood around and you said, I can't believe that guy did that. It's, just, it's good to know there's still decent people in the world, right? Have you ever had that conversation? Well, what's happening when we say those things is that we are appealing to some standard that we believe everyone knows about and agrees on. We're expecting that everyone will recognize that this is bad and this is good. Or think about the last time you got in an argument with someone. And maybe it was even on the way to church this morning. And, and you said, well, you shouldn't have done that. And they said, well, you shouldn't have done this. And, and we make those statements because we know that certain things ought not be. And we believe that standard is widely known. And as much as people use the evil in this world to argue against the existence of God, the knowledge that certain things ought not be is actually, actually an argument for the existence of God. Because if there is evil, then there is good. And if there's such a thing as good and evil, then we agree that there's a moral law. And that moral law, we can't all just be making that up for ourselves. We believe that it was given to us by a moral law giver. And that moral law giver could only be God. Now, all of this leads us to a third assumption. And it's this. Assumption number three is that the world is broken. When you look at the the question this morning, how can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world? We look at those last four words and we recognize that the world is not the way that it should be. And it goes beyond just the evil actions of human beings. We see it in things like earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and mudslides. And we see these things, and we see the devastation that they bring. And we have this feeling that, that it's not right for innocent people to suffer and to die and to lose loved ones to these natural disasters. In fact, why do we call them that? It doesn't seem natural at all. In fact, it's the farthest thing from it. Something is wrong with this world. Why? What happened? Well, Christianity teaches that it wasn't always this way. In fact, if you read the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, what you'll read over and over as God is creating, He's declaring all things good. He creates the the sky and the water, and it's good. And he creates land, and it's good, and plants, and, and animals, and mankind, and it's all good. That's Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But then we get to Genesis chapter 3, and everything goes south. Because the man and woman who God created... They do what God told them not to do. They rebel against God. They sin. And when sin entered the picture, death and decay was the result. And we read about uh, all of this in Romans chapter 8. When death became a reality on earth, Paul says this. He says this in Romans 8.20, that the creation was subjected to frustration. Okay, this isn't how it was supposed to be. Death and decay weren't part of God's plan. But when man sinned, it was the whole creation that was affected, not just mankind. The whole world was broken and subjected to frustration. And Paul says, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And Paul says that that was done in hope. Verse 21 that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Now, wait a minute. Is Paul really suggesting that there could be a reason why God might subject us to the pain and the suffering that are the result of evil in this world? Yes, he is. And again, the truth isn't emotionally satisfying, but here it is. God has put it inside of you and inside of me to feel the weight and the frustration and the pain of what ought not be in hope that we would be rescued from our bondage to decay and brought in to freedom. How could that possibly be? How does that work? Well, in preparing for this message, I came across the story of a young lady named Ashlyn. And Ashlyn was born with a condition called CIPA, C-I-P-A, Congenital Insensitivity to Pain with Anhydrosis. In common man terms, it means that the Ashlyn doesn't feel any pain and her sweat glands don't work. And you may hear that and you may think, man, that, that might be actually kind of nice to not be able to, to feel pain. But the problem is this. Ashlyn can step on a nail, The nail can pierce the skin of her foot and cause us an infection, and she would never know it happened. She'd just keep right on walking, no clue that it ever happened. She could put her hand on a red-hot burner with no idea that it's blistering her skin because she feels absolutely nothing, and Ashlyn's mom said that this condition has caused so many problems that it has caused her to pray every single night, God, God, Please let my daughter feel pain. And if we can understand in this limited physical sense how pain allows us to know that something is wrong and then to respond accordingly, can we also begin to see that God can use the pain and the suffering that come from the evil in this world, not only to show us what is wrong, but to push us toward what is right. Romans 8 points to the truth that God intends for the brokenness of the creation and the frustration of that brokenness to point us toward something. And that something is the final assumption in our question today. And it's the fact that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. Within the question, how can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world, is the understanding that humanity is unable to end evil. Notice that all of the responsibility in that question is put on God. Why? Because we understand that only God has the power to end it. We caused it, we feel the effects of it, but we cannot eliminate it. We know that we can never be good enough, we can never incarcerate enough people, we can never give enough money to charity to get back to that perfect state that God created in the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 when everything was good. But here's the good news. In his goodness... God made a way for us to be liberated from this world of evil and decay. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He says, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, and he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, and he did that to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as both to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Notice again that Paul is pointing toward the forbearance of God. That word is sometimes translated as the long-suffering or the self-restraint. God was holding back his punishment for the evil in this world. And and he's doing that because he doesn't want anyone to perish. God doesn't want anyone to perish to the point that he sent his one and only son into this sin-soaked world where he experienced firsthand all of the pain and the suffering that our evil had produced. And he gave his life as a sacrifice for your sins and mine so that one day we could know a world where evil is no more. Now, John describes that world. In Revelation 21. And he says there, there will be no more death. There will be no more sadness, no more pain, no more tears. And this is the best part we will be with Christ forever. This is the hope we've been given. And it's the promise that I referenced earlier in the message that Christ is coming again for those who have put their faith in him. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that when Christ comes, man, it's going to be so good. It's going to be so good that we won't even consider that our current sufferings, even as bad as they might be, we won't consider that those present sufferings will even be worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed on that day. So how can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world? Here's our conclusion. If God removed all the evil from the world, he would have to begin with me. But God entered this world through his son to forgive me rather than remove me. And one day Christ is coming again for those who have put their faith in him. And on that day, evil will be destroyed once and for all. That's the hope we've been given. And it leads me to one final question. If God were to push this button today... Do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt what would happen to you? Have you received the free gift of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, the the promise of eternal reward with Christ, eternal life? It's a yes or no question. There is no maybe. Maybe. And there is no guarantee of tomorrow. That's why scripture says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. God is patient, but he will not wait forever. He is coming soon. And I beg you this morning, if you have not already, put your trust in Christ. Take care of this this morning and live every day from here forward, looking toward the day when Christ will come and evil will be destroyed and we will be with him forever. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that, uh, Lord, though you made this earth good, that when we rebelled against you, we sinned against you, we did what you told us not to do, that you didn't just leave this planet spinning out of control. You didn't leave us on our own, hopeless and helpless, but you saw us in that desperate state. And because of your great love, You sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life, life apart from this world of sin and evil and death. Lord, we thank you for that this morning. We thank you for that truth. We thank you that Christ is coming again to destroy all evil. But Lord, I pray this morning that if there are those in this room today Father, who are not in a life-saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that you would make them brave today to stand against what the world would say, that this is all just foolishness. Why would you believe in God? Why would you believe in any of that garbage? Lord, it's not garbage. It's truth. It's hope. And I pray that they would move toward you today in a bold way to receive the free gift that you have offered at the high price of the blood of your one and only son, Jesus Christ. Would you make us bold this morning if that's a move we need to make? And, Father, for the rest of us here this morning who are already living in light of your grace and in light of eternity with you, Father, encourage our hearts. There are those here this morning certainly who are enduring suffering and hardship because of of some manifestation of evil in our world. Lord, encourage us that our hope is not necessarily today, Father. It's in the future, but it's a hope that we can hold to securely that Christ is coming again, and we look forward to that day, and we say, come, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.